and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Anya Foxen on her fascinating new book, Inhaling Spirit, Harmonialism, Orientalism, and the Western Roots of Modern Yoga. Hello and welcome to the program. Hi, Raj. Thanks. Uh, so this is actually a 2020 uh, OUP publication, hot off the presses. Um, what's Inhaling Yoga about? Well, it's Inhaling Spirit. Um, but... Sorry. <laughs> I'm, uh, f- uh, listeners, be warned. I am on two hours sleep uh, for a variety <laughs> of reasons. So <laughs> Inhaling Spirit. <laughs> Pardon me. No, it's, it's funny. Um, I feel like the title has been giving pe- people more trouble than I expected. I think Breathing Spirit is another common one that people somehow land on. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of oddly exact what it sounds like. Um, It's a book about, I think at the center of it, the history of kind of spiritual breath-oriented practice. Um, And and the words are all in English. So, you know, yoga's in the subtitle, but not the title, I think sort of very intentionally, um, because part of what the book does is kind of foreground the history that these practices have outside of Indian yoga traditions in particular. So then when you say breathing practices, is the book about what one may think of as pranayama? Um, So to some extent, right? And this was sort of a tricky line that I had to walk um, as I was writing the book. My background is is as a South Asianist. Um, So for me, for a very long time, yeah, breath practice was pranayama. Um, And then I started noticing something really interesting and looking specifically at kind of like late 19th, early 20th century. So early transnational yoga sources. Um, And I, I found this phenomenon of scholars applying the term pranayama to things that I guess more generically we could call kind of an English breath practice, um, almost a little bit retroactively. When I went back and looked at those sources, pranayama was not a word that showed up. Um, it was, you know, it was deep breathing or, or whole body breathing or something like that. Um, and so I'm still not entirely sure how to kind of talk about, um, the subject matter of, of some of what's in the book. Um, because on the one hand, um, a lot of the stuff, especially as we do begin to see Indian yogis um, kind of entering into conversation with, with Western practitioners in the early 20th century, um, they do use the term pranayama, of course. And so to some extent, the stuff is pranayama. Um, but also, again, part of the book's argument is that like, if we want to be culturally specific and really kind of attentive to which practices are coming from where, we're talking about maybe a different mm, species of, of breath practice from what Indian yogic pranayama would be. I like the I like that you the, you use the word species because then we could further the analogy and think well okay maybe pranayama is the genus somehow and there are these other species or, or, or breath practices are, are broader than what we think of as pranayama. What um, you, you just alluded to this, but what is the central argument of the book in terms of the sources of these practices? So what are we concluding? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I say this at some point in the introduction, I always wish I could like, when I'm speaking, come up with a sentence that's as nice as whatever I felt like I wrote. Um, but it's essentially the idea that, um, Modern yoga is a transnational practice. Um, And so when we look at transnational practices, I think we're tempted to look at it as something kind of delineated, right, and and singular that travels from one context to another. Um, And so the book's, I think, broadest argument is that it just doesn't work that way. Um, when we look at practices, when we look at things that people, actors actually do like yoga or like pranayama or whatever particular thing we want to put our fingers on, um, we really have to look kind of at, at both sides, right, of the whatever the, the transcultural context is that we're dealing with. Um, so it's never just enough to look at the history of pranayama in India to understand kind of what modern yogis are doing. Um, we also have to look at what would have existed in, let's say, a place like England or a place like the U.S., um, and that history of practice, that other half, um, to really kind of understand this hybrid thing. 
um, that ultimately we're sort of dealing with when we look at a modern global phenomena like yoga. Oh, due to the pressures of evolution, species obviously adapt uh, from continent to continent and do appear uh, quite different yet similar. What? Um, so then the other side of the equation, so um, what are you looking at in terms of sources, in terms of uh, period? Like, w- what is the data for the book? Mm-hmm. So I, the kind of original research that I did for this book, um, that's actually primary versus secondary sources, was mostly grounded in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, so I originally actually imagined this project as being something a lot narrower than what it ended up being. Um, I really just wanted to look at these kind of, you know, turn of the century like nine or 1860s onwards, um, women's exercise manuals. Um, this is something that Mark Singleton had already kind of put his finger on in uh, Yoga Body, his book on modern postural practice that came out about what, over a decade ago now. Um, and he sort of left that question open-ended, right? He, he actually has, I think, a paragraph where he suggests, um, you know, it would be really cool for somebody to actually look at the history of some of these breathing practices um, that, that are emerging in the 19th century in Europe and America. Um, and so that, that still ended up being kind of the primary data that I looked at, although I ultimately went broader than just looking at um, exercise manuals. But then beyond that, I, I sort of, once I started looking at the stuff. And um, as I said earlier, kind of, I was, I kept looking for pranayama. I kept looking for yoga. Um, But I realized that we actually were dealing with something that had maybe a a very different history. Um, And so to that extent, I do go all the way back to, you know, kind of Hellenic Greek sources. Um, I mean, that's, that's maybe a shallower overview um, than it could have been, but it's also not necessarily my area of expertise. So I zone in on the 19th century, but then kind of at least gesture backwards um, to that other broader history. And so um, maybe flesh out for our listeners, um, you gesture backwards to that broader history. um, uh, To what aim or how do you use those sources? Mm. So that's kind of the harmonialism piece um, of the subtitle. Um, Essentially, what I'm arguing is that there's this kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a tradition because it's not a tradition per se. Um, this body of practices that have existed in, um, you know, if if we want to use this kind of problematic term of the Western world uh, for for really centuries upon centuries. Um, And so some folks might use terms like Western esotericism to to refer to kind of a similar body of stuff. Um, Occultism, right, is another term that gets thrown around. Um, But I I ultimately kind of landed on the term harmonialism, partially because it's something that um, other modern scholars have used to refer to some of the same traditions. So Sidney Alstrom um, was the sort of most famous instance of that term. Um, But also because it's kind of the language that we see showing up in the sources themselves. Um, So this kind of broad, I want to almost call it kind of metaphysical model, right, of um, the way that uh, uh, the world, the cosmos is constructed um, as kind of this, this harmonic system, something that's based on actually very musical notions of harmony um, and the way that things like spirit, things like energy um, have historically been understood to move through that. So there you get into sources that are kind of neoplatonic, right? Like mystical sources um, throughout uh, Greek and then subsequently into European history, um, but also actually some really interesting medical stuff. So there's a lot of kind of like history of medicine and history of science that happens in my introductory chapters. There's definitely some fascinating uh, parallels between medicine and and um, uh, spiritual occult uh, systems of thought. Maybe we could touch on that a little later. Um, you know, when you, you mentioned Mark Singleton's work and, and the question he left uh, open as sort of perhaps a, a starting point or, or, or something that got you along this path, I mean, was that the genesis of the book or how did you get to research this? What, what, was, the, what was the impetus behind this book? 
You know, I think to some extent this book is is kind of the other side of the the same question I was exploring in my first book, um, which was biography of a yogi, and it was kind of about yogis in general um, as they move from um, you know kind of colonial India basically uh, into uh, Europe and America, um, but in particular it was a study of Paramahansa Yogananda, who was kind of my case study for for that phenomenon. Um, and I, I landed on that topic partially because, you know, I was a South Asianist and I kind of had this interest in uh, comparative blending practices, um, but also because personally, I just really wanted to understand um, what the heck was this thing called modern yoga, Um Right. I mean, it, 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 you if you look at the historical sources in India, um, this is true of ancient and modern practices in general, but certainly there's a disjunction um, between, you know, even medieval Hatha yoga and then kind of what we see in the modern world today. So. I think to some extent, I, I dug into some of these attempts to kind of modernize yoga practice to medicalize it in um, in different ways uh, by virtue of that last project. But I think the question for me that was left unanswered is um, where does all this other stuff come from in modern yoga practice? The stuff that doesn't really seem to flow very naturally from the Indian sources, um, the stuff that seems to be, you know, again, maybe a corruption or a bastardization or something like that. You see a lot of that language thrown around. Um, (laughs) You know, I like that a little bit better. Yeah. Or like a hybridity um, of some kind, right? Because I think what I know this stuff does have a history. Um, It's just that it's a, it's a different history. And that's why it's interesting to kind of look at both sides of the stuff that's coming together. Right. So this other side, uh, uh, this um, so where does quote unquote all this stuff come from? This cross pollination, where does all this stuff come from? Um, clarify that question for me a little bit. What's that? What's the all this stuff? And- so, uh, just now you mentioned um, that your interest in looking at the trajectory of yoga and how it's quite different uh, in the West in modern times, certainly, and that there is this gap in terms of understanding. Well, we can understand the trajectory of of yoga from ancient India to uh, the modern West, but there's all this other stuff that cross-pollinates it, mm-hmm. right? And you were just talking about that. So where does, where does all this stuff come from? You know, I've been struggling with how to articulate that quite a bit. And again, I kind of invented, well, I didn't invent it. I borrowed um, this term harmonialism and sort of expanded it maybe a little bit, um, you know, in terms of how previous scholars had used it. Because again, I, yeah. You repurposed the term. You repurposed it. Yes, yes, I like that. Um, but you know, it's it, this stuff. I think is kind of difficult to study. Um, and scholars of Western esotericism have been complaining about this for for decades and decades, right? Because it falls into this weird kind of non-space um, in in our current Western academic understandings of what the history of religion versus the history of science versus the history of, I mean, God knows what else, philosophy, right? Theology, um, how, how all that stuff kind of gets compartmentalized apart from each other. And so I think, uh, yeah, I still don't really have um, a very good way of putting lines around kind of what the sources in the West are, because some of it is kind of mysticism um, and and maybe spirituality. Um, so Emanuel Swedenborg is hugely influential, for instance, um, for some of these 19th century folks that are talking about kind of spiritualized breathing practices um, and even spiritualized gymnastics. Uh, but on the other hand, if you actually want to sort of dig into some of these understandings of the body, um, including the subtle bodies, so there's some interesting stuff going on, for instance, uh, with how the chakras come to be understood as this kind of very specific seven point rainbow colored kind of layout, right, which you really don't find in pre-modern Indian sources. Um, then you have to look at, again, almost like the history of medicine. Um, so I ended up looking at some, you know, kind of Renaissance European medical manuscripts. Um, and so it's it's. Yeah, 
if, if I still don't really have a good way of talking about kind of what is this stuff in Western culture other than it's Western culture and it's Western esotericism. Um, and it's kind of right. The diffuse body um, of, of different disciplines, different beliefs and practices that are sort of, um, you know, endemic to Europe in the way that that's something like, um, you know, Tantra or yoga um, or any of these other very broad terms that we have um, exist and float around in different ways in India. Well, you, um, the, the questions uh, that I ask typically are um, meant to be generative more than sort of conclusive, particularly with, with, with the subtlety of, of, of uh, sort of the data that's in your book. And and so I, do, I certainly expect a succinct response to that. It's more about the journey, so I'm glad you <laughs> talked to the question. Um, you, in your answer, you raised, um, if we could pan out a little bit, and for those of you in the audience who may or may not be um, within our discipline, uh, just bear with us. If we could pan out a little bit, I think you raised an important general question of, who studies the occult? Like, if not in religious studies, where is the occult studied or should it even be studied at all? It seems to me that that's a question that's um, important related to your work, certainly, but I think important to our discipline. Would you agree with that notion? I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And I mean, I think we see this right in so much of the awesome new scholarship that's coming out um, on the occult and people that are doing sort of more localized adjacent studies where, um, I mean, it's difficult to some extent, right? Because I think like occultists and esotericists tend to fancy themselves kind of interdisciplinary almost by default um, because, the idea is, right, we're sort of uncovering the hidden truths of the universe. Um, and so a, a theory of everything has to encompass everything, but it makes it really difficult to study um, because, of course, as scholars, we have our own little sort of area of specialty and people who study religions are usually different from the people who study, you know, medical texts and um, and sort of other, other areas of the history of science or something like that. Um, and so it's, I think it's really difficult to kind of both locate those studies, but also to really, um, you know, I don't pretend to have really done this, but to, to kind of pull together like the expertise that's necessary to really dig into the stuff in depth. Yeah. So um, maybe say a little bit more about um, your findings regarding the cross-pollination of um, sort of yogic notions of an anatomy, sacred anatomy even, in modern medical anatomy. You also mentioned, um, uh, for example, that uh, the, the notion of, of the, the chakras, uh, each having a color of the rainbow, that this is not an ancient Indian idea, that this is a modern Western sort of um, adaptation. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, I, I use that example because the chakras are actually something that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. I'm working on a textbook project right now. So I'm really sort of trying to nail down in, in the simplest possible terms, a lot of these categories. Um, and so, yeah, to some extent, I think one of my one of my pet peeves is actually kind of not allowing um, Indian esoteric categories, like something like the chakras, to, to modernize in the same way that we expect maybe Western categories to do. Um, so to some extent, I think if we if we really want to talk about kind of the modern medical body in yoga, um, we do have to pay as much attention to what's going on with, you know, kind of like Western pushes to to look at things in a in a modern medical way um, and, and to equally also look at kind of how all of that evolved um, in India. You have the, something like the chakras um, being treated much more as a natural kind of given part of the body. Um, way prior to the 19th century. I mean, the, the Hatha Yoga texts, uh, Jim Mallison's done a lot of this really awesome work um, along with other folks at SOAS, um, you know, kind of looking at how um, how the, the, the Indian tradition itself is taking these things that were originally kind of circles of deities, right, that in a tantric context would have been really kind of specific to um, a sect and a pantheon, um, and really kind of mapping them onto anatomical features of the body. Um, 
And so, so on the one hand, it's really interesting to see how this like kind of huge variability um, of, of chakras and chakra systems in India, uh, where there's not necessarily a kind of systematized um, way of, of, of looking at the subtle body, if we want to call it that, um, eventually does become more systematized. And so we get to, I think, usually the most common framework is this kind of six chakra system um, that is very much sort of anatomically uh, uh, um, mapped after a certain point. Um, and then looking at how that slowly evolving framework then kind of comes into contact with this other stuff that we find in, in the West. Um, so this idea of there being sort of specifically seven points um, and them having these like kind of very specific colors. You see the chakras having colors um, in Indian sources, but they're not the kind of rainbow layout that we see um, once we get into kind of the 20th century in this transnational context. Um, and so one sort of very gratifying discovery for me, also just from my own personal understandings of it, was to figure out like where that rainbow stuff comes from. Um, and again, it, it tends to be Western. Um, it's not kind of there in, in chakra systems as far as that's an Indian term. <laughs> I have to say, um, I, I interview all kinds of, um, uh, well, not all kinds of folks who are <laughs> of Indian religions, essentially, but all kinds of methodologies and time periods um, uh, entirely unrelated to my research in Sanskrit narrative. I nevertheless find fascinating, gripping even this, um, this uh, cross-pollination or this sort of um, dovetailing or attempting to dovetail um, the sacred anatomy or the chakra system with um, modern physiology, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, our medical understanding. I find that endless, endlessly fascinating. Um, and, <laughs> you know, my my tendency with, um, with studying uh, South Asia, Hinduism, whatever we want to call it, <laughs> South Asian religion, my tendency is to compartmentalize because it's the only way to stay sane. Mm -hmm. So, um, and at the same time, it certainly is compelling to have to to to, to pursue some grand unified theory of um, you know what quote unquote the subtle body is in mm -hmm. quote unquote India, uh, you know you know the human sacred anatomy, and so it's really interesting that you trace how textured these understandings are um, on both sides of the fence, but also that what we in the West may think of as an ancient Indian idea concept, uh, maybe akin to a, a, um, a, a species that once existed, perhaps only elephants, for, for example. We may be seeing an African elephant or an African elephant thinking this is an Indian elephant. And actually, no, this is not an Indian elephant in quite the same way, if you'll permit the analogy. Yeah, I like that. I um, uh, So a, a good friend of mine that I'm actually co-authoring this textbook project with, Krista Kuberry, um, she used a plant metaphor that I think was trying to accomplish something similar in her dissertation, which I've now sort of borrowed from her. Um, she liked to talk about rhizomes. Um, I also used a plant metaphor to talk about the stuff in my dissertation. Um, I talked about inosculations, right? So this idea of kind of like trees growing. So you've, uh, you've crafted the metaphor to your own work. We've now builded our metaphors. And so I think my new thing that I'm going with is like, imagine now rhizomatic plants don't technically inosculate, right? But like, I'm not a botanist. So I feel like I can fudge these terms a little bit. Um, imagine an, an inosculation of two rhizomatic plants, right? How messy um, and, and just chaotic that would be. But I think that's sort of what we see, um, in, in traditions like modern yoga, right? This, this, uh, it, it's really, really comforting to talk about kind of grand unified theories, right? And, and, and kind of, um, these neat boxes that we try to plop traditions into. Um, and I think that actually kind of methodologically that has its use, right? It's not necessarily like a bad thing to do that. Um, but on the other hand, it's also, I mean, it's, it's so horribly messy when you look at it, right? But it's also so like exhilaratingly messy um, once you start to actually dig into how traditions evolve and mix and, and how everything's always this kind of little pointillistic um, image, right? Where, where nothing, nothing ever really kind of coheres. It just sort of appears to do that for a time. Well, if you're studying Hinduism and you're confused, then you're probably on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you're, if you're, if you're 
clearly is happening uh, uh, in some religious phenomenon in South Asia, then you're probably um, probably taking a wrong turn or a hasty conclusion you've made somewhere along the lines. Um, uh, who uh, you mentioned the project that you're doing now, and uh, I'll touch on that. That's you've preempted what is typically my my closing question, which is asking what you're working on next. But uh, before we touch on that. Um, who might be interested in this book other than sort of um, Indian religion nerds like you and me? Mm. You know, to some extent, I'm just really bummed that um, academic publishing works the way that, that it is. I, I wish there was a paperback edition of this book that was, you know, 80% cheaper. Um, cause to some extent, there are parts of the book that are very much written for practitioners. Um, and I realize that not everybody may have the patience. That's what I was hoping you'd say, but I didn't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> I, I am a practitioner, right? I, I still do kind of identify that way, despite all the sort of personal difficulties that I have and figuring out what that even means for me at this point. Um, and and I, again, I, I sort of admit that not everybody will want to sit there and wade through like my discussion of you know, uh, Marsilio Ficino and Renaissance kind of spiritual theories or, or Plato or something like that. Um, but I think to some extent, I, I did very much envision this project as something that practitioners, especially Western practitioners, um, could use to better understand their practice. Um, and, and kind of this anxiety over like authenticity and appropriation. That's not a, that's not a sort of bad anxiety to have. I think it's a very important anxiety. Um, and it's a very important set of, of issues to kind of be attentive and pay attention to. Um, but I think that if we're going to actually do anything about some of these kind of more, you know, social issues that tend to circulate in the yoga world. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a history nerd, right? So this is obviously a biased opinion, but I think that has to come from a, a groundwork of kind of historical understanding. Um, what's traveling where, how, right? Like these questions about authenticity, what is authentic? Um, and how do we sort of pull apart um, the different parts of a practice and figure out kind of what's coming from where, and stuff like that. You know, um, when I originally enrolled uh, uh, in post-secondary studies, it was uh, it was a coin toss between English and history for me, uh, literature, comparative literature or history. Uh, literature won out. Um, I still love history, but I find that one has to be particularly brave to attempt history in the South Asian context <laughs> and be satisfied, uh, especially in, in more ancient epochs than perhaps this project. But nevertheless, so much of what you're tracing are, is a history of ideas that's so murky um, because of, you know, the, 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 the record-keeping culture or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about uh, this is a book for practitioners, uh, I imagine you mean yoga practitioners, yes? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's... that's and, Sure, sure. Just to, just to clarify, because folks may be listening, being like, yes, you know, I've read it or I'm interested in reading it. And, and so just to clarify, you know, I think there are probably a number of people in the audience who have either an interest in yoga or are um, practitioners, whether casual or avid, uh, whether for more physical benefits or for spiritual growth. And so it's good to know that they'll find parts of this book useful um, for that side of the fence as well. Um, can I ask a little bit about... Because I think this is very important. Um, can I ask, if you don't mind, can I ask about the tension? Um, there's two things that are really fascinating as sort of an armchair anthropologist. The tension between being a scholar practitioner, whatever that means, you know, or however wanted to find that. And then also um, the tension that you talk about in terms of this anxiety about appropriation. Um, these are two, I think, really kind of... Um, they're fascinating. They're, they're no more fascinating than the material in your book, but they're more um, timely. I mean, they're lived, right? We're, we're, these are concerns that scholars and practitioners have. So if you don't mind saying a bit about either of those tensions, I think it'd be great. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, you know, I, I think to some extent, we are all scholar practitioners, right? We're, we're insofar as we're scholars, um, that's kind of a given, but we are also all practitioners of something, 
um, whether that's explicitly the stuff of our scholarship or whether it's something else. Um, and I guess what I mean to say by that is we all have some kind of perspective, right? I mean, this kind of, uh, this, this, this myth of kind of academic objectivity. Um, I mean, it doesn't even really exist in the sciences fully, but for something like the humanities, I mean, I think to some extent our scholarship is almost, it suffers. Um, the more that we try to ignore our own personal perspective. Um, I think that honestly, the best that we can do is kind of acknowledge um, how we're doing what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing, um, be very upfront and clear about our our methods, um, the interests that our arguments may, may carry, even while they're still sort of methodologically sound, scholarly, academic arguments. Um, and so I guess for me, it's it's more helpful to almost kind of embrace that idea of, of me having a stake in my work, right? Because then I can lay it out for my readers and let them sort of navigate that um, and figure out what their own stake is in it, whether that's as scholars, whether that's as, you know, people that are coming to it for other reasons. Um, and so I guess it's it's from that perspective that I would also approach all of these um, these issues around kind of uh, uh, appropriation, right, and sort of related um, related problems that we see in kind of modern transnational practices, practices that travel. You know, I, th- I think um, especially just sort of given what the book is, um, as I get into that more modern period. Um, you know, it's it's not a coincidence that I am a white woman in the U.S. who practices yoga, um, who ended up writing about the role that white women primarily in the U.S. had um, in kind of co-opting and, and repurposing and uh, sort of reinterpreting um, some of these traditions that would have been originally associated with yoga, but that take on entirely new valences um, once they kind of enter uh, the popular sphere in the U.S. And, and I think to some extent, right, to ignore um, that confluence of my subject matter and my identity um, would have been irresponsible as a scholar, but it also would have kind of made the project um, sort of not as rich as it could have been. Um, you know, this is something that I kind of hope will speak to practitioners um, and that practitioners can encounter on their own terms. Um, I think to some extent, right, we're not going to sort of just at, with the snap of our fingers, deconstruct like centuries of colonialism um, just by doing a little bit of history. But I think to some extent, again, history kind of allows us to lay that groundwork um, for kind of understanding our own positions, understanding the history of our practices, um, understanding what's at stake in the spaces that we enter, um, whether they're yoga spaces or they're other spaces um, for all the kind of cultures that may have a stake in, in what's going on there. Uh, so many fascinating themes there. Um, oh, would you say that? Um, would you say that an appreciation for the quote unquote roots or, or the history or the let's say the religious uh, milieu of yoga? Would you say an appreciation for that is important for um, uh, a modern Western practitioner of yoga? Not necessarily yourself, but I mean in general. You know, I. I mean, I suppose that if if I wanted to kind of really think about what that would be, it w- it would depend on the practitioner, right? And and to some extent, like as I was writing this book, I I really went down this rabbit hole of like, well, should we even be calling some of this stuff yoga? You know, like I I prior to the pandemic um, used to attend a kind of corporate yoga studio oh. in Santa Barbara. There was a time before COVID nineteen. I forgot about that. But- Times. This is something that I did um, with my time, and you know, I would I would walk into that room, and and of course, most of what's going on there is is it's exercise, right? And and people who go to these classes, myself included, would say that they're doing yoga. The name of the place has yoga in the title, um, but if you look at it, I mean, it's it's to some extent so kind of discontinuous um, from anything that would have historically been called yoga for the last two thousand years that it kind of made me wonder, right? Like, what are we doing here? Um, so, so I think most of the people who would show up in these kind of places, 
I'm maybe troubled by, again, how we're kind of assigning terminology, right, and the history of, of kind of Orientalism, right, and all that cultural baggage that's automatically there. But, but is it important for those people to learn the history of their practice? Not any more important than it is for anybody to learn the history of the culture that they float in. Um, meaning it's sort of my wishful thinking that maybe people would be more thoughtful about kind of the past. Um, but, but that's, that's not specific to something like yoga. Um, I think for people who, who are invested in their practice as yoga, um, whether they're Westerners or, or whether otherwise actually, because it is all sort of hybrid and blended at this point. Um, yeah, I suppose I do think that it's not only important, but really helpful um, to kind of understand where the practice comes from. And that doesn't necessarily need to change anything about sort of what it, what it means, um, to the practitioner on a kind of individual, just sort of practice oriented level. Um, but I do think that it, it's always better to be kind of more self-aware, right. And, and more self-reflexive rather than less, um, and I think, again, especially if we are dealing with some of these kind of um, issues of social justice and anxiety over appropriation and colonialism and Orientalism and stuff like that, um, the history doesn't solve those issues, but it, it kind of clarifies uh, what the issues are, at least. No, I, I resonate with much of what you said, and there's this... Um, <laughs> uh, there are certain concepts from Indian philosophy and religion that I find exceedingly powerful for counting human beings. And one of them is Swabhava. You know, people have their nature, their innate nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are those who uh, are oblivious to the history of anything they do. I mean, who cares um, how, how the history, who cares about the history of photonics or electronics? You know, I'm going to use my iPhone type thing. Um, and then there are those who are interested in history, who are interested in spirituality, religion, culture. You know, um, <laughs> I probably would have much more to say if we weren't on a podcast called New Books in Hindu Studies that was um, dedicated to your book. But if you'll permit my sleep-deprived uh, self to share a little bit about why this fascinates me. So um, can I tell you a little bit about my experience with the yoga community? Mm-hmm. I love that. So um, uh, this must have been 2004, 2004-ish. I um, had uh, I in my undergrad, worked for a while, but at this point I came back and discovered the study of, of Hinduism, intro-Hinduism, and then took severance, came back to school. And and so this is a pivotal point in my journey. And I was actually going to a yoga studio to hear an Indian master, like a classically trained Indian master, give talks on yoga sutras. Mm. There are people at the studio who, who they went there for yoga, and then there are people who came as part of this burgeoning sangha um, of aspirants and and devotees and uh official and unofficial students of of this gentleman and so i had these years of receiving my own spiritual training in the context of where many people went to work out (laughs) (laughs) i had the fortune of having tutelage well beyond the the satsangs of the yoga studio but nevertheless um for a few years in Toronto, I would be giving talks and doing programs for yoga teacher training uh, for YTDs in Toronto, just to give a sense of the context, the uh, spiritual, religious, ethical, philosophical, particularly mythological mm-hmm. soil that 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 yoga um, can draw from uh, and has drawn from for for quite some time, um, and it. It was never really a, a campaign of mine. It was sort of a. I, I loved teaching these concepts to people who were interested in learning more. And most of the, the YTTs, they were pretty serious. The people who worked with in Toronto, they were fairly serious practitioners, so they were happy to to receive what they thought of as this sort of enrichment. I've come so far from the position I was then in that <laughs> I had a conversation the other day, and someone was uh, uh, lamenting um, sort of the. Um, appropriation is not the word that was used, but maybe the, the, the sense I got was the, the bastardization, right, mm-hmm. of yoga, the, the sort of like, you know, the, the demification, or the, 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 it, was, it was somehow. Um, first, I said, listen, if you fancy yourself an authentic yogi, then you know that this is the Kali Yuga. And it's a must decay time, so get over it. But I said, 
he says, but they're not doing yoga. I said, of course they're doing yoga. What are they doing? That's what yoga is. No, but yoga is this. I said, no, yoga is physical postures done in the modern West at every other street corner. That is what yoga is. It's also is a technical term that comes from the history of religion, right? It's also related to a, 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 a spiritual mystical path of realizing divinity. But right now in 2020, you know, uh, Toronto, New York, uh, he was actually a, a, an American colleague. I said, yoga, that's what yoga is. So mm-hmm. there are many words in English that have much deeper, much richer meanings, but we don't, we don't, you know, there's a small block of yoga that, that is the, the modern English noun, and that's what yoga is. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a yoga practitioner. I'm a, you know, and people even use the word yogi to mean someone who does physical postures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think, I mean, I don't have a point <laughs> because there's no, there's no position to land on that is not tenuous at best in terms of how to adjudicate the appropriation and or diversification of <laughs> the history of yoga in the modern West. But uh, I do find your um, your take and also your subsequent research fascinating. And I thought to share in my sleep-deprived state uh, precisely why. So. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think I think to some extent you're you're absolutely right. Um, yoga yoga does have all of these different meanings, and yeah, here in you know 2020 New York, it it does mean this thing. Um, and I think to some extent, right, having kind of a historical mindset about it um, is very liberating because this idea that that yoga is this kind of you know, unified, um, ancient tradition that, that has some kind of pure origin point and that, you know, if only we could go back, um, 1500 years or whatever, and like talk to Patanjali or, or, or whoever, right. Uh, we could somehow like, like find that perfect kernel of what yoga is. I mean, that's an illusion, right? That doesn't exist. Um, the further back in history you go, the more it becomes obvious that yoga was never just one thing. Um, even if we are just sort of isolating ourselves to ourselves to South Asia, um, yoga always has had just as a term, um, this diverse range of meanings. Um, it meant very different things in very different contexts for a very long time. Um, and so I think, I think if we just kind of stop looking you know, for the truth with a capital T when it comes to yoga, um, it really does open up a lot of doors. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't kind of, again, be, you know, self-reflexive and, and be attentive to how things have evolved. Um, but, but it doesn't necessarily sort of, you don't have to use that bastardization language, you know, um, you could call it something like, like evolution or diversification or, or whatever, right? Your preferred, preferred framework would be. Yes, and for the record, diversification is my word. Bastardization <laughs> is your purpose. Side purposefully. Yes, of course, of course. Um, tell us about this. Um, you know, tell us about why you've been thinking so much about chakras, other than probably you know, other than your own. Yeah, um, uh, tell us in terms of this new project of yours, what you're what you're what you're writing right now. Yeah, I think I think to some extent, you know, and then there are other other things that we can kind of point to that are also good examples. But chakras are such a good example um, of of how um, you know kind of different traditions, different cosmologies, different understandings of kind of what 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 is it um, to kind of talk about a subtle human body, um, how these things come together and how they sort of, they meld, right. And their similarities and their differences. Um, because chakras are so, so ubiquitous at this point. I mean, inevitably, if my students, my undergrad students know nothing else about Hinduism or yoga or South Asia or, or, or anything, um, of that sort of related set of ideas, they at least recognize the picture of the chakras. They're like, Oh, I've seen that before. Um, and, and yet this ubiquitous image has such a complex history. Um, and, and there's just so much there to kind of untangle, um, 
in terms of why it got to it got to look the way that it does for us today. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, you go to you go to uh, Rishikesh where there's a yoga teacher training on every street corner, um, and you walk into those those uh, those trainings and you ask them for a picture of the chakras, and what they have is the kind of seven point right rainbow colored thing. Um, so it's it's not that it's kind of isolated to this, you know, it's, it's, it's this monster that emerged in the West through kind of bastardization or something like that. Um, it's very much kind of become a standard, um, including in, in, uh, the place where chuckers originally come from. Um, and so I just, I find it so fascinating kind of how all these different understandings of the body, cultural, historical, um, you know, kind of both, both metaphysical and anatomical interact, um, when we imagine something like the chuckers. So what are you working on now? This, uh, this, this collaboration you mentioned. Yeah, so it's, it's a textbook. Um, I believe the working title currently is, uh, is this yoga question mark, um, concepts, histories, and the complexities of modern practice. Um, so it's still, I'm, I, as I mentioned, I'm working on it, uh, with a friend and colleague of mine, Krista Kuberi, um, and so she's actually, you know, another kind of PhD um, in comparative religions and uh, and things of that sort. But she also is much more embedded, I think, in the yoga community than than I am. Um, and so the way that we're imagining it is both as a kind of textbook for undergrads. So it's you know we're we're using all the Sanskrit with the proper diacritics, and it's it's sort of um, very very by the book um, on that level, but also really as a resource for practitioners um, to have something that that um, practitioners, uh, yoga practitioners, uh, yoga teacher trainings perhaps can kind of refer to. Um, that's going to help them understand uh, what is it that this practice is? What is it historically um, in as much of its complexity as you can fit into a 100,000 word book? Um, and then how does that relate to what we find today without kind of necessarily kind of squishing it all down and saying that there's some sort of, you know, single uh, strand or, or, or single framework or single um, idea of yoga operating here? Um, how can we nevertheless find connections? How can we make sense um, out, of, out of what we mean when we use that word? So then we will have to um, pick up where we left off and discuss that book once it's out. It'll <laughs> <laughs> emerge into the world. Uh, it's, it's still, we're, we're in the later draft stages now. So I'm optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, you know, it, I, there's, in your subtitle, I think it's, um, uh, you use the phrase Western roots of modern yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea is, is I mean, there's a lot in that idea. It's it's one is tempted to think of well, there's modern yoga, and then let's learn about the roots of yoga, mm-hmm. right? But there are <laughs> modern yoga has roots in the West, mm-hmm. in addition to in ancient India, mm-hmm. and that's um, I think personally, like that's a really important takeaway for both scholars and practitioners. Um, is there anything else uh, before we close that you wanted to highlight as a takeaway or other aspects of the book you hope to touch on? Um, you know, maybe, maybe to just quickly come back to um, that same point that you made about kind of, you know, what yoga means today. Yoga, just the word yoga. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I kind of wish I'd gotten to explore more in the book from like a theoretical perspective um, is this idea of translation. Um, and I touched on it a little bit kind of, you know, on, on either end of the book, but, um, I, I really only, this kind of occurred to me like after the book was already in print. Um, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense to talk about translation when we talk about kind of uh, transnational practices like yoga. Um, but yoga is also interesting because the word itself is, is not translated. We use the word yoga to refer to, I mean, sometimes I, I'm convinced really thoroughly Western practices um, that have very little to do with anything that happened in India prior to, you know, 1800 at least. Um, and yet we still use the word yoga, um, which is identical to, 
you know, a, a number of, of, of um, South Asian traditions that, again, would have just looked entirely different. Um, and I think that that sort of lack of translation in the terminology um, actually really obscures a lot of stuff. Um, I just I find that very curious, right, how we can how we can use a word um, from one culture to describe something that um, has emerged in another culture and again, maybe parallel, but really unrelated ways. And um, it's come to feel very natural for us. Um, And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's just sort of, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. Uh, And the analog that comes to my mind that I reflect on a fair bit is karma Mm -hmm. in the West and the use of karma in the sense of, well, you know, just as we all have etched in the back of our brains this um, rainbow-colored series of orbs that uh, are located uh, in the subtle body, the chakras, we also have etched in our brains this this um, note beside a jar saying tipping is good karma, you know, or <laughs> 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 some such thing, uh, which we see based on uh, the kind of establishment that the tip jar was in and how much we have imbibed that night. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> The, the idea, and this is, I mean, karma, it, the the theory of karma is so um, instinctive and intuitive, this action-reaction, this, you know, the sense of justice or why me, why is this happening to me, what's the reason, you know, that one can easily say, well, yeah, the, you know, all cultures have kind of this, this sense, but karma is so very, very specific mm-hmm. um, in terms of... Um, ideas in the history of religions, it fascinates me to no end that we can so easily assimilate this term in the modern West in in the context of a very, very different worldview, mm-hmm. whether it's secularism or whether it's a vestige of the tent of Abraham. We, it, it fascinates me to no end because um, the term in many ways is so um, against the grain of our, our outlook and perspective and value system in the West. And yet it's this term that's just thrown about here and there. And there's a sense of what it means. And, you know, if someone holds the door and says, yeah, you know, why'd you bother holding the door? Oh, I wanted to, I just, you know, it was good karma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or someone, you know, um, someone may incur something negative and uh, it's bad karma. And yet there's no sense of samsara. There's no sense of moksha. There's no sense of any of the nuances of, 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 what the term is a keystone for in terms of these systems of thought. And so I find that to be an interesting analog. Um, and just a slightly nerdy observation, um, even in a technical sense, the word yoga, the meaning of the word yoga is obscure even in a technical sense because some say it's to unite and some say it's to divide. <laughs> so I find that interesting as well. You're in a, in a dualistic or a kind of non-dualistic mode of the cosmos, right? Um, either yeah. one or the other may be more desirable. <laughs> Exactly. Um, that's great. That sounds like a great place to stop so everyone can reflect on um, their unconscious uses of the word yoga and karma for the rest, for the rest of their lives. That's a good takeaway, actually, reflecting on the, the similarities and differences in understanding that underlie our use of these words. Excellent. So uh, for those of you listening... Um, we have been speaking about a brand new 2020 OEP publication, uh, Inhaling Spirit, Our Harmonialism, Orientalism, and the Western Roots of Modern Yoga. We've been talking with Dr. Anya Foxen, um, who will one day return to the program um, to share her new textbook with us. <laughs> For, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Anya. Thank you so much, Raj. So for those of you out there, um, stay safe. Uh, Seems like there's light at the end of the tunnel in terms of COVID-19. Of course, someone may be listening to this podcast a year or two from now and wondering what the heck I'm talking about. But (laughs) uh, at this moment in history, um, it looks like the ice is starting to melt. So uh, stay sane, stay safe, uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep thinking about the meaning of yoga. Take care.